But we're talking about radical hospitality. Uh, what does it mean to open your home? What does it mean to open your table? What does it mean to open your fridge? Uh, to meet as believers, as people who uh, are apprentices of Jesus, and to meet around a meal table in a radical and transformative way. And uh, the, the scripture that I talked about last week, that is one of the key scriptures for this series, is from Luke 7, 34 to 35, that the Son of Man came eating and drinking, and you say, here is a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. And, and what we explored last week is that Jesus uh, is a different type of Messiah. He's a Messiah who is relational and he's full of life and humanity and love and laughter. And I love this image of Jesus, which is so different from the stodgy religious uh, images that we often see. Uh, he's laughing his head off and, and, you know, what an amazing God. He, uh, he ate and he drank. His enemies accused him of being a drunkard and a glutton, which he wasn't because he was holy. But there must have been something about who Jesus was and how he lived and how he spent time with outcasts and broken people that made him gain a reputation as he did. And I think as apprentices of Jesus, my message last week was that we need to recalibrate our imagination so that we can be more like Jesus, so that we can be more like the God who eats and drinks so much and spends so much time with broken people that he's accused by his enemies uh, for all the wrong reasons. So look, I love this quote that I found by American humorist Gary Keeler. And he says this, uh, Some people think that it is difficult to be a Christian and to laugh. But I think it's the other way around. God writes a lot of comedy. It's just that he has so many bad actors. Isn't it so beautiful that there's something about the Christian message, there's something about our Messiah, about the, uh, the God we follow who laughed and he ate and he drank and he lived a full and rich life and yet many of us just aren't very good actors. Uh, we're not following the script of the founder that well um, and what a beautiful image that is that we can be radical and eat and love and live like him and therefore experience a sense of radical hospitality which is what this uh, series is about. So today I want to talk about what it means to eat as family because we, when we share a table, we sometimes share a table with those who aren't apprentices of Jesus, who don't believe in the gospel. But I want to talk today about what does it mean to eat as family, to eat as brothers and sisters in Christ around a table and to share life on life, to become like an extended family. And in particular, I want to talk about what it means to have meetings together. But when I say meetings, I mean M-E-A-T-I-N-G. Okay, so today is about what does it mean to have a meeting together, to, to eat and share life around a table? And uh, what does it mean to be, uh, I suppose, radical in an ordinary way? So look, I remember the very first time that uh, I started to meet on a regular basis with people who were uh, brothers and sisters in Christ and to do church in a house. And so Kylie and I uh, had just been married. We'd been married for nearly a year, I think. And I was 24 years old, and we just had this sense that God was stirring something in us that was different. Now, I had been having lots of questions and wrestling for a long time, for, or a number of years, about church as I knew it. You know, I was deconstructing stuff, I was asking the big questions, you know, why do we sit in pews? Why does a man stand up at the front and talk for 
20 minutes or 30 minutes to all of you. Why do we sing songs? Why do we meet in a religious building? Why do we do this and why do we do that? You know, I asked all these questions about church and, and at the same time I was wrestling because I was reading the New Testament. I was reading the book of Acts and I was saying, well, look at this book of Acts and, and they seem to eat and drink and live life and do miracles and multiply. There's this stuff happening that was beyond my experience and so God was stirring up a rebellious, restless in me that was wonderful uh, and it was raising questions in me. And then about the same time, I had uh, three couples. Two had left church altogether and one was wrestling with these questions in a church service and, and another single person. And over about six weeks, each couple came to me in, at different points in time and said, if you were to start a church in your house, then we would come along to church again. And so Kai and I really prayed and we wrestled with that and uh, we did speak to our pastors and in the end, over a few months, we actually made a call to leave our congregation and we had a process to leave and we started a church in our house. Now, we didn't call it a church back then, it was an experiment to us. We were just experimenting with what does it look like to eat around the dinner table, to do life once a week with a bunch of people and try to see what happens. And it was an amazing experience. Uh, we ate every week, sometimes we prayed, sometimes we looked at scripture. You know, there was a lot of brokenness and anger and bitterness in people in our group and yet at the same time there was a richness and a hunger and a beauty and it was amazing. And, uh, and it was clunky, uh, we called it our experiment for about oh, nine months because uh, we were making it up. We were giving our, ourselves permission to try new things. Some things I'm sure were heretical, some things were just beautiful but we were just giving community a go in our houses in a rich new way. And, uh, and while it was scary, it was real. And I remember um, after about, oh, I think about nine months, we said, well, we can't call it like the experiment anymore because it's just not a very good name. And so we sat around eating and drinking and one of the guys, Zane, said, why don't we call it the mononyms? And the reason we wanted to call it the mononyms, which is what it ended up being called informally, was because a mononym is a non-name and it described who we were perfectly. So a mononym is uh, a name given to someone who's famous enough to have one name, like Bono or um, Madonna, Sting, etc. And by its very nature, you can't have a plural mononym. So we thought the mononyms was an oxymoron. So, I mean, it's very geeky, <laughs> it's very nerdy. It's, um, yes, even at the time it sounded a bit weird, but, but the point was it described what we were trying to do. We were trying to be radical and deconstruct and do life differently, and it was a whole lot of fun. And while there was a whole lot we did badly, I think one thing we stumbled upon, which we did really well, was this idea of eating together. We ate together every week, and we shared stories, and we laughed. Sometimes it was a potluck, sometimes it was takeaway, sometimes we cooked for everyone. Actually, there wasn't a lot of M-E-A-T-I-N-G because one of the couples was a vegetarian, so you know, we, we learned to cook with tofu. But the point is that we ate and we talked and it was real and it was authentic and it was a vulnerable, authentic community that I had never really experienced. And we didn't just eat, we drank. 
We drank lots, actually. And it was funny because I used to, I mean, I've always tithed, you know, most of my Christian adult life I've tithed, which is to give 10% of your income away to the church as your first fruits and to trust that God will work in your life in order to free you from the addiction to money and to bless those around you. And yet, um, uh, where do you tithe when you're meeting in a home and you don't have any expenses? And so I wrestled and kind I prayed and I really felt that God said, you need to be generous and it's a period and a time for grace and for doing things differently. And I really felt God say, provide the wine. Uh, so I know that sounds very heretical, but we ended up buying $30, $40 bottles of wine, like two bottles of wine every time we met for church. And we brought beautiful wine and we drank and we ate and it was lavish and it was fun and it was joyful um, and it was amazing. But um, after about nine months, I thought, I just started to feel uncomfortable that you know, a lot of my tithe was going to drinking good wine as a community. Uh, and I thought, God's grace was on us, but, but you know, there are people who are actually starving overseas. You know? and, uh, and then I was praying, and after a few weeks, I thought, I'm going to have to tell our community that you know, no more wine on me. And then all of a sudden, I got a letter in the mail. We opened it up, and it was from our local bottle And it said congratulations, you've won the Red Shed Booty. And the Red Shed Booty was 48 bottles of premium, top-quality red wine. And I'm like, Jesus, you even provide the wine at church. How amazing are you? And what a good and gracious God that actually he let me provide the wine for a while as a gift of grace, and then he provided it. And the very last bottle of Red Shed Booty wine that we drank was the day we left to Cambodia to look at mission and was kind of the end of our time with the mononyms, uh, which is an amazing thing that God just is rich and lavish, uh, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. By the way, if you're a part of our church, I'd rather you tithe to us than pay for wine. But, <laughs> but no, God's good. So oh, here's a picture of the mononyms, just to embarrass some people in the room. You may see that there are some friends from Adelaide who came up. There's the 1960s carpet, which I think still has all the food from our time there. There's Kylie and, and myself. Uh, and the little baby is Tiana, who is now many years older. So it's it a really fantastic experience. But my question, just to reflect on in silence, is do you have a story like this? Uh, have you ever experienced authentic, deep community around a table? Just pause for a minute in silence, and then I'll move on. Okay, so let's look at some scripture and explore what it means to meet together, M-E-A-T-I-N-G. Uh, so then, my brothers and sisters, when you gather to eat, you should all eat together. So this is from a letter by Paul to the church in Corinth, the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 11, verse 33. And what you see here is that Paul doesn't say, if you gather to eat together, he says, when you gather together to eat together. So there is an assumption that as family, as brothers and sisters, as family language, extended family language, that people are coming together as an extended family, as believers, and they are eating together as part of what it means to be a church community. Uh, so Jesus ate with his disciples regularly, uh, the apostles ate together, and then uh, the disciples that flowed out of uh, that ate together. The early church always ate together. They broke bread in their homes. They shared life around a table. So it's a central practice that we see in the scriptures. 
But the question I've been wondering as I read passages like this, and we're going to go more into the 1 Corinthians 11 chapter in a moment, but as I, ask, as, I read, as I read passages about brothers and sisters eating together, the question I've had is, you know, if we are to be apprentices of Jesus, if we are to be followers or disciples and be like him and eat and drink together in our houses, then what is the name in Scripture for this practice? You know, what type of words does Scripture use to describe this practice? And we use the term hospitality, uh, but what does Scripture use? Just pause silently and think about that because this is what I want to go through today. So, look, for a bit of context, when Paul wrote the letter to the Corinthian church, it wasn't a church. It wasn't a church in one building, it wasn't a denomination, it was a network of house churches, a network of people who met as God's people in the church throughout the region of Corinth, which is an area in south-central Greece, and it was an important and large trading centre, one of the most important cities in the ancient Greek area. Uh, and, and he was writing to a particular group of people at a particular point in time. Now, the, most of the Corinthians uh, came from a Gentile background, so they were pagans. They, they were used to, they were grown up in a very different world than ours. So pagans would, um, they would kill animals and sacrifice them uh, as part of their worship to the gods. Uh, there would be kind of wild and ecstatic celebrations in the pagan world in Corinth. Uh, people would meet and there would be orgies with prostitutes and that would be part of their worship to the gods, like such a very different world than ours. And you had this group of people who had become believers through hearing about the life and death and resurrection of Jesus from the Apostle Paul and they'd formed a church and then Paul had moved on. And he was writing a letter because the church had gone a little bit unruly. They'd become a little bit wild, they'd become a bit rogue and he wanted to speak into this church, into this network of churches to recalibrate what it meant to be a Christian community who worshipped in a Christ-like way rather than a pagan way. Do you follow? So this is the context. And, um, and, and there was divisions in the church in Corinth at the time. So there were different groups who were saying they worshipped or followed different... Well, they followed different people. So some followed Apollos, some followed Paul, some followed Peter. And it's not that either of these apostles were bad people, but, but we're meant to follow Christ. And so Paul was writing at the beginning of the letter about saying, uh, don't follow me, follow Christ, because we are one people under one God with one Messiah. And, and the divisions weren't just about who people were following. The divisions included rich and poor. So there was this division happening in the way people ate in Corinth. The wealthy were eating in one way, the poor were eating in another way. Uh, and so Paul is writing to this group of people in Corinth to recast a vision for what it meant to be a community of Jesus' people. He wanted to correct selfish behavior and he wanted to create a restoration of unity and order in the way they did their church gatherings, in the houses, uh, in their courtyards. Okay, And so let's read this passage. So in the following directives, I have no praise for you. So Paul is not a happy camper in this letter. I have no praise for you for your meetings do more harm than good. In the first place, I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you. And to some extent, I believe it. No doubt, there have to be differences among you to show which of you have God's approval. So this is just again saying that there are divisions in the church, uh, that Paul is unhappy with the way that the Corinthians are meeting, and he wants to speak into this culture and into this gathering. 
And then he continues. So then when you come together, it is, and again, when, not if you come together to eat, but when you come together, it is not the Lord's supper you eat. For when you are eating, some of you go ahead with your own private suppers. And as a result, one person remains hungry and another gets drunk. They're getting drunk at church. This is quite a different culture, isn't it? Okay. Uh, don't you have homes to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God by humiliating those who have done nothing? Uh, who have nothing, I apologise. What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? Certainly not in this matter. So what Paul is doing is he is saying that the way in which you're meeting needs to be connected with the Lord's Supper. It needs to be connected with when Jesus ate his last meal with his disciples before he was crucified on a cross in Jerusalem. And when they eat together, they remember that Jesus broke bread, which was his body, and that they, they drank a cup. And they need to remember there's a holiness in the way they ate. But what we also see is there's something about how they eat, which is different than how we do communion, for example, because they could get drunk. Now, I guarantee no matter how hard you try, you won't get drunk here. All right, with what we're providing. So there was a real meal, there was real wine, there was, there was um, a substantialness. Uh, that's not even a word. But there was substantial nature to how they ate and drank. You, you follow? Um, and then we continue, okay? So the, the scriptures talk about this, this gathering of God's people and eating together as the agape feast. So the love feast is what was happening, okay? So believers would meet in a courtyard uh, after dawn, uh, it would be dark, they would come in and they would meet in a wealthier Christian's home. They would eat together, they would pray together, they might sing some songs, they might read some scripture or some letters, or, and, and they, would, they would prophesy, they would, they would lay hands on each other and bring healing, and they would encourage and inspire each other. This is, this is what it meant to be God's people. Okay, so there was a love feast and it was meant to break down divisions between rich and poor. It was meant to break down divisions between slave and free, between men and women. It was meant to be God's kingdom, his expression of what heaven is like on earth, face to face with other people around a meal. It's a beautiful image and this is what Paul is trying to remind us of here. And, um, and so he goes on. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after, he, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Now, this is a very famous verse. We read this out as we have communion, don't we? But the context is really important. So Paul is speaking into this context to bring unity amongst different people because if we go back a step, he was upset about two particular things. He was upset on the one hand that wealthy people, people from the upper echelons of life, were bringing their own food and their own wine and eating separately from the poor, from the outcast, from the broken, which sounds nothing like Jesus, does it? And then you had poor people from the lower echelons of society who were at that same love feast, but they were segregated and they were separate, just like the rest of Roman society. And they probably hadn't eaten all day because they were poor. Now, poor in those days meant that you don't eat. They were separate. And so there's this sense where Paul is saying, hang on a second, that is nothing like what the kingdom of God looks like. That when you come together and eat, you don't get drunk and you don't, become gluttonous you share your food and you create this new community of life and it's found in the lord's supper 
that you eat and you drink and you share life together. It's a beautiful image, yeah? Um, and so I suppose what we see here is that Paul is wanting to remind people that a meal is radical. <laughs> a meal is about eating and sharing life and transforming society. A meal is communion when you remember Christ as you eat and as you drink. It's substantial. And then he says, so then my brothers and sisters, when you gather to eat, you should all eat together. Suppose my point isn't that we have a problem with getting drunk or that we are necessarily eating in a segregated way. My main point is to, to remind you of the imagination of what it means to be a people of God around a dinner table. That we have rich and poor, slave and free, that we get together, we remember Christ, we break bread, we drink wine and it's communion. It's communion around a meal. And you know, Neil Cole, he says this, we all know that fasting can be a spiritual exercise, but eating is really more like Jesus. Church was never meant to be holy services held in sacred buildings conducted by saintly men in long robes, passing the wafer and a thimble of juice removed from real life. And that's a challenge. I mean, Neil Cole is challenging in the way he writes, but he's saying that communion was something different. It was a meal. Wolfgang Simpson, who writes about house churches, I really love this quote. He says this, that church tradition has managed to celebrate the Lord's Supper in a homeopathic and deeply religious form characteristically with a few drops of wine, a tasteless cookie, and a sad face. However, the Lord's Supper was actually more a substantial supper with symbolic meaning than a symbolic supper with a substantial meaning. God is restoring the eating back into our meeting. Okay? I love that image that we kind of can make the Lord suffer a bit homeopathic. <laughs> this little symbol, a little bit. It was meant to be a meal with others that you smelt and drank and ate. An amazing meal, a feast. Okay? And as we did that, and as we remembered, there was something just there was something meaty about it. M-E-A-T-I-N-G. I look, I'm not at all against the way we do communion. I love communion. I mean we do this every week, or every time we gather in this building, every time we gather for a service, we celebrate communion in a way that isn't a substantial meal. And I really, really value this. I deeply do, and that's why we do it. Now, uh, I, I used to not. We've come full circle to see the value in meeting in a public gathering uh, in a way that is a little bit more sacramental, a bit more um, open, but a little bit more artificial in terms of real life. But there's something really valuable in this. Uh, so it's, I'm not against this but what I would want to say is that our primary imagination and our primary experience of communion needs to be eating a meal with brothers and sisters as family and remembering Jesus because that is what communion was in the scriptures this can be an expression but our primary imagination I believe needs to be eating with brothers and sisters which is a challenge for us but it's beautiful as well so when asked, one of the, when asked the question, what does it mean for us to be apprentices of Jesus gathering in a house and eating and drinking together, what do we call it? What do we call it? Communion. When we remember Jesus with thankful hearts, we break that bread and as we drink that cup. It's real life. You follow? All right. But it's more than that. Okay, so um, I also wanted to look at the book of Acts briefly because 
Eating is not just communion, there's something even more substantial, I think, about this as we eat and drink together. The Acts of the Apostles, I, um, I want to read from the book of Acts, and, and I heard an African church planting person say, just last week on a podcast, that we shouldn't call it the book of Acts. And yes, the Apostles did particular Acts, but he said that we should call this book How to Start a Church Planting Movement with No Resources, or How to Bring Down a Global Empire One Meal at a Time. <laughs> I think that's a much better name for the book of Acts, don't you think? How to Transform the World with no resources, no institutions, simply because you rely on the Holy Spirit and love Jesus. What an awesome book. So if you haven't read the book of Acts, please read the book of Acts. But there's this amazing passage at the beginning. Now, this is before the church has been scattered. And so it's still in the temple. It's not an illegal religion yet. It's simply a sect of Judaism. And, uh, and this is what we read. It's a description, really, of what the church should be. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who would need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes. They ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Now, it's a beautiful description of church at its best. And I know there's a particular context in the way this is written, but it is still a vision of church at its best, of who we can be as God's family, eating and drinking and sharing life and doing miracles and transforming the world um, in amazing ways. And when we read the book of Acts, we've got to remember that um, we have punctuation uh, we have, you know, there are full stops, there are chapters, there are verses in the way we read our scriptures. But the way that original scriptures are written, they are just written in long text, okay? They didn't have the same uh, literary kind of forms that we have today. And so when, uh, an, when the authors of our scriptures wrote the text, the only way that they could emphasize a point was through repetition. If you repeated something once, then it was important if you repeated it twice, and it was really important. It's the way in which you kind of created memory. And so if you look at this, this is what's happening in this passage. There's a lot about eating together in this very simple passage. They broke bread. They broke bread again in their homes. There's your repetition. They ate together. You can't kind of miss that there's something important about the meal in terms of what it means to be an early church. And something about eating together was truly radical in the name of Jesus, in the power of the Holy Spirit. Amazing. You know, later on, they met in houses and they ate. Simple. Okay? And they remembered. Uh, they shared food. They shared possessions. So they shared everything in common. Again, it's simple, but really hard. They did life together each day. I mean, they were eating together daily uh, in an organic and relational way. They did life together, which is so hard for us in the West. But they did it every day. They were thankful. They practiced gratitude. They praised God. They worshipped in their hearts as they ate, as they met together. They enjoyed each other's company. Again, very simple, very radical. They performed miracles, so they prophesied. They laid hands on each other. They, they, they just they exhorted each other. They shared stories about the miracles that God was doing in their life. They encouraged each other in the presence of unbelievers as well. And they grew 
They grew in numbers and they multiplied over time. Very simple, a simple vision of what it means to create a church that multiplies around a table. Beautiful but simple, yeah? And that's the image that I see in the book of Acts. Now, I, I had this amazing, I was so grateful, I had this um, meeting with someone on Tuesday and it was an amazing story how it came about. But uh, it was a man in, from Melbourne who is part of an organisation who plants churches in India and in northern India. And uh, the founder of this um, church movement was an Australian from northern India who ended up um, having a vision from God, I think, uh, when was it, 1998, to start planting churches in Nepal and northern India around a meal table. And so I met this person, uh, this person, Simon, who works with this organisation, and, and he told me about the amazing stuff that's happening like in little tribes and little villages all around the place. Uh, they said they have planted 25,000 communities in India and Nepal since 1998. 25,000. They're currently planting eight new communities, eight new churches every day. Eight a day. That's worth celebrating. The church is absolutely exploding in some places in this world, uh, just not in the West. Okay? So it was an amazing conversation. He showed me a photo of a, um, an Indian man and he won the award from their organisation and the award was Most Persecuted Church Planter. <laughs> like, the day we need a Most Persecuted Church Planter Award in our church is the day we're doing something really, really well. <laughs> but it's amazing to see this smile on this young man's face. I would, I would dread to hear his actual story. But um, amazing things are happening. And yet, I said, to, I said to Simon, okay, nine churches a day, you've planted 25,000 communities, you have a vision for 100,000 in the next 10 years. Um, what do you call these things? Do you call them house churches? Because, you know, they do meet in houses most of the time. And he said this, he said, well, you can call them that, but we just call them churches. I mean, they meet in a house, they eat together in Jesus' name, they pray, they sing, they give money, they serve radically in the local community, they share the gospel with their friends, they practice gifts of the Spirit, they train new apprentices of Jesus, disciples, and they send them to plant new churches. What do you call it? A church. So the question, I suppose, is not only is a gathering of people in Jesus' name who eat together communion when we remember Jesus, his body and his blood shed for us. But when we do it in the power of the Holy Spirit and allow God to move and allow the table to create space where we can be transformed, it's actually a church. Now, you know, church is more than just eating together. I really want to acknowledge that. But it's not less than that. And that's a pretty good start. And it's amazing what God is doing when people meet together and eat together in amazing ways. So I suppose we have a vision here at Together Church to be a community who births communities, who eat together. And this is a picture of stones from last year. Uh, who eat together around a table and share life with other believers and with those who don't yet know Jesus. We eat together, we pray together in our homes, we learn together, that doesn't mean a sermon, but we read the scriptures, we learn about Jesus together. We serve together. Now this is just a picture of us sharing a meal, sharing community with our neighbourhood. Um, there are lots of different ways to serve. This is just what we happen to do. 
but we eat, we pray, we learn, we serve together and, and we want to see many, many missional communities, that's what we call this, across the suburbs of Hobart. So we currently have two. We have one in South Hobart called Stones, we have one in Risdenvale and they meet for Little Church as well. But our vision and the things that we are praying for as a leadership team, we are praying for new communities. I particularly would love to see one in the south, in Kingston or Blackmans Bay. We would love and pray for a community in the north, in Glenorchy and Moona, um, and maybe one in the city. We would love to see the beginning of a place where we can eat and train and love and bless people in order to start to multiply. And our vision for Together Church is that this service will be a hub where we can meet and worship and teach and learn and be united together around a common vision, but we will also birth and support and equip multiple communities that meet in houses around the suburbs of Hobart. We would love to see one missional community or house church in every suburb of Hobart. They don't have to be together church ones, but we want to be part of stimulating this. And we also, you know, my longer term vision, I'll probably die before this happens, but I want to be part of this. I want every person who lives in Hobart, in a suburb of Hobart, to be in walking distance of a church, of a community who eat together, pray together, learn and serve together in Jesus' name and train people in the power of the Holy Spirit and then send more people out to open more tables. Yeah? And that's why we exist. This is why we are together, church. So I suppose my prayer is that you'll be part of this movement and pray for this vision and, and open your homes and start eating with people and start praying that God will bring us more homes so that we can train and equip more people which is why we're here. We want, to, we want to see Hobart transformed by the love of Jesus one meal at a time. So with that in mind, I suppose I just want to ask, what is God saying to you in this? And will you join it? And what is he saying? What is the next step for you? Just pause and listen to the Spirit for a moment and then I just want to move towards concluding. So look, this is a big vision, I realise that. It's a big vision and it's a small vision. It's pretty simple. Just eat together, learn, serve and share together. But God has called us to this and let's pray into this. It's not complicated but it is radical. Hospitality is radical and that's why I'm speaking on this. Um, now this is a... Uh, uh, Simon Kerry Holt is a chef and a theologian. He says this, hospitality is a very ordinary business, but in its ordinariness is its real worth. Now, there's nothing ordinary about my wife, but I thought this was a fantastic photo um, from our last big dinner. So hospitality is a very ordinary business, but in its ordinariness is its real worth. It's not complicated, but it is radical. And uh, if we simply opened our home, our fridges and our tables and did so with generosity in the power of the Spirit, then we would see more stuff happen. So with that in mind, I, I suppose I just want to encourage you about what is the next step. So I realise that for some of you, you do this already. Some of us eat every week. I mean, I share a table three, four times a week sometimes. Yeah, many of us eat once a week. Um, some of us, this is a really big stretch for us. So, so wherever you are right now, I suppose there is a next step. And I believe the next step is going back to the book of Acts. So... The book of Acts says they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, 
to the breaking of bread and to prayer. So if you find the idea terrifying of opening up your home or eating with other believers on a more regular basis, if you're exhausted already because of your busy life, which is just the way life is in Australia, there is no blame and no judgment here. It is hard to make time to eat together. But if you are feeling that this is hard, well, where do you start? We'll start by simply having a meal, breaking bread, with someone else who's a believer, you know, find someone else in Together Church or someone else in your relational world who believes in Christ, eat with them and then pray and leave space for the Holy Spirit to do something. It won't be, ama- it won't be remarkable, it won't be amazing at first. It might be, it really might be. Sometimes it isn't, sometimes it isn't. But there's something about the radical, ordinary nature of hospitality, of eating with other believers where the Holy Spirit can be present We remember Christ and we pray and see what happens. Over time, stuff happens and God transforms us. I read a quote that said, an untabled life is an unstable life. There's something about eating together that makes us more stable as people, especially in our hyper-individualized and fairly lonely world. So eat and have bread. Um, And so I suppose I'd like to challenge you that hospitality is not just an idea, it's not a theology, it's not something you talk about. It's something you do. Okay, so, so ask God, what is it that you're being called to do? Um, and I actually want to finish because I want to encourage you because many of you are giving this a go and I'm so proud of you. It's, it's amazing. You know, Tim Chester says that the Christian community often wears me out, winds me up and drives me crazy. I love that. The Christian community wears me out, winds me up and drives me crazy. But I also have moments where I look at my brothers and sisters and know the presence of the risen Christ. It's not that my community is anything special, yet there are moments when I see Christ incognito among the ragtag people sitting in my front room and then it seems he's gone again. And that is my experience, that there are some days I'm eating with a ragtag bunch of people and I'm one of them and they're driving me crazy or I'm driving them crazy, but we commit to eating together because we are an extended family and we are learning to be family. And there are other times I'm like, wow, Christ is here right now. We lay hands, we pray for someone, someone says something vulnerable, someone shares a testimony or a story about how they shared their faith or how something happened. We read scripture, there's a prophetic word, like stuff happens. And then sometimes it doesn't. But the nature of eating together regularly gives Christ space to form his church. So if you eat together and you're tired and find it hard, then I just, I just want to cheer you on and say, keep going. Don't give up. And be encouraged, you're doing an amazing job. And if God is convicting you to start the next step and open your home again, then do that too. And it's not hard. Just eat some bread and pray. And do it again and again until you find the right people who you click with, who you feel God has called you to be with. Open up a home and we'll take it from there. So why don't you stand as we go towards communion. So Father God, we just lay our hands open in an act and a posture of openness. And just before we take communion together, we just ask that you'll speak to our hearts, Holy Spirit, I pray that you will comfort fear. I pray that you will strengthen weary hearts. 
I pray that you'll encourage what we're doing well and you'll challenge us to be an extended family who is radical around the table.